This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Another quarter and another government announcement extending the restrictions on landlords' remedies for recovering commercial lease arrears. But this one had a few surprises. And our property pattern today is going to look at those, as well as discussing how parties to commercial leases have been dealing with their COVID arrears so far. My name is Emma Humphreys, and I'm joined today by Richard Friendly and Natalie Duker from our real estate disputes team at Charles Russell Speechleys. So, Richard, we are now very well aware that landlord remedies have been significantly curtailed during the pandemic, but uh, can you perhaps outline for the listeners, uh, by way of a reminder, uh, what the current position is? I think there had been some hope the restrictions might be lifted, at least to some extent, last month, but that hasn't happened. Uh, So where are we? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We did think that maybe uh, the end of June might be a a bit of a boon moment for landlords but um, it didn't quite prove to be that case. Um, We've obviously uh, discussed in previous editions of Property Patter the basis of the government's decision to apply various measures to protect commercial tenants during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, As a bit of a recap uh, they related to restrictions on the ability of landlords to rely on the remedies of forfeiture of leases commercial rent arrears recovery or CRA for short and on the ability to use insolvency procedures to enforce payment of the debts owed by tenants. It's been a common theme I think of the restrictions that they've been fairly heavily time limited with extensions being granted periodically as the pattern of the pandemic has become clearer. As you've uh, quite rightly mentioned the restrictions were due to end last month but um, they've been extended albeit in different ways. It's a bit of a departure from the previous approach where there was a uniformity to the extension periods. In terms of uh, insolvency, the restrictions on winding up petitions have been extended to the 30th of September this year. Accordingly, um, in effect, the restrictions uh, dictate that no winding up petitions are are to be presented on or after the 27th of April 2020, which rely on an unpaid statutory demand served during the period ending on the 30th of September, and that that no winding up petitions are to be presented during that period unless the creditor has reasonable grounds for believing that coronavirus has not had a financial effect on the company or that the company would have been unable to pay its debts uh, irrespective of the impact of coronavirus. Um, The ability to use CRA has also been extended Um, and has also been extended on a number of occasions, but this time until the 25th of March next year, 2022. Although when the government did uh, make those extensions, they didn't actually provide any further increase to the period of rent arrears needed to be able to use CRA. So accordingly, that leaves us in a position where um, until the restrictions are lifted or otherwise changed, the arrears thresholds before landlords can exercise CRA Uh, will be as follows, Uh, 276 days uh, for enforcement notices given before the 24th of December 2020, or where goods are taken control of for the first time before that date, 366 days rent arrears for um, notices served between the 25th of November, sorry, 25th of December 2020 and the 24th of March 2021, 
457 days uh, between the 25th of March 2021 and the 23rd of June 2021, and then 554 days went to arrears for enforcement notices served from the 24th of June 2021 onwards. Um, and as I say, that will uh, continue through to next March. So basically, so people who probably didn't have their pen and paper out there, all that obviously is on our website. But basically, what you're saying is for COVID arrears, forget it. <laughs> basically, um, and, and uh, forfeiture is exactly the same. For, you know, so it, it's taking us up until this 25th of March uh, point next year. So until the government decides um, to uh, what it wants to do regarding those restrictions, that's where we are. Um, could be could be further. But um, but yeah, it's really, really difficult in terms of uh, in terms of recovery. Yes, it won't have been music to landlords ears, will it? That government announcement? Not at all. No, quite right. Too. No, I think there was quite a lot of disappointment. Uh, I don't think anyone expected, you know, a resounding return of everything. But I think it was very much not at all where landlords thought it might be heading. No, quite. So uh, let's just also share a bit of expertise or, or, or kind of intel on the conversations that we've been having, things we've been seeing. Um, Natalie, what have we been seeing in the market? Um, how have landlords of commercial properties been addressing the rent arrears owed to them uh, in light of these difficulties? Um, it's estimated that there are billions of pounds of unpaid rent um, in the market since around March 2020. And lots of tenants have withheld rent, um, even if they've been able to trade, relying on the restrictions that Richard was talk just talking about, um, which were imposed by the government as a justification for withholding their rent. Um, there were a couple of important decisions in April um, 2021, which have been widely awaited, um, and those were the cases of Commerce Real and TFS, um, and the Bank of New York Mellon and Cine UK. And both of those decisions were in response to landlords who had looked for other ways of enforcing rent arrears, and they were issuing applications for summary judgments where their tenants have been in arrears of rent since around March or April 2020. Um, and in both cases, the court's judgment shows that although the courts were sympathetic to the tenants' positions and the effects of the pandemic on the tenants' business, the courts wanted to focus on contractual certainty, which is something that we'll touch on again later in the context of the new government initiatives. But in both of those cases, the applicant landlords were granted summary judgment for the rent arrears. Yes, and, and in both of those cases, they were making the point that, you know, when you looked at the terms of the leases, the parties had negotiated what arrangements should be, um, and the court wasn't there to effectively go changing the law, really. That's exactly right. And what about the code of practice for commercial property relationships during COVID-19? How has that affected matters? Well, the code of practice um, was um, raised by both was raised in both cases by the tenants as a defence. Um, in the TFS case, one of the tenants' arguments was that the landlord's claim for the rent arrears was premature um, because the tenant argued that the landlord had failed to engage with the government's code of practice and that the landlord was seeking to take advantage of loopholes in the law concerning enforcement of covenants. And the court said that the code of practice was voluntary and that it wouldn't have the effect of varying the lease terms. Um, on the facts of the TFS case, um, there was actually no evidence to show that the landlord had failed to engage in the code of practice. Um, and then in the Bank of New York Mellon um, Cine UK case, 
The tenants argued that the code of practice was designed to promote communications between landlords and tenants, and that the landlords shouldn't be issuing proceedings for recovery of rent. But those arguments failed. And incidentally, the code of practice itself was due to expire on the 24th of June um, this year. And although there is no indication that it has been renewed, in that it's not mentioned in the uh, recent press release, um, looking at the government website, um, there is a statement that a number of organisations have endorsed the code, and it now looks as if it is to be reviewed by the 25th of March 2022. So that would be in line with the um, extension of the restrictions on forfeiture and craft. Yeah, unsurprising, isn't it, really? I think that's what we were expecting. The code would go with, you know, yeah. however the government decided to deal with any further restrictions. Yes, and it was interesting to see, you know, how the code responded. I mean, I think um, in those particular facts of those cases, the code just really was not applicable. Uh, but, you know, I, I can imagine there might be cases where, you know, that wouldn't be the case and perhaps there would be some cost penalties or something like that imposed for, for people, you know, not engaging properly. Yeah, I mean, I think the difficulty is that the because it is voluntary in nature, um, the courts felt that um, it didn't actually impose any obligations on either party. Um, and they, they did make the point that the courts wanted to focus on contractual certainty and that they wouldn't they, they, they wouldn't accept that the code of practice could alter the legal relationship between the parties. I mean, effectively, you know, it seems clear that the courts were quite keen to come to a position where the landlords could succeed, bearing in mind that other avenues have been removed. Um, and um, it's interesting now looking at the new initiatives of the government to see how they might be trying to now get around some of the issues that were previously um, being encountered in practice. Yes, that's right. And we'll come on to talk about that in a second. Because I mean, this this is my whole point about the code, you know, from the start really was we didn't need it. By the time they introduced it, we were already doing the, the things it was suggesting that yes. you know, landlords and tenants should do. Yes. Landlords and tenants do know what to do. We've been through a recession not that long ago, you know, and they know how to engage with each other. Um, and yes, you'll always get the odd party that doesn't. But, you know, the courts have a general discretion, uh, you know, to penalise on costs if they think that parties haven't behaved in accordance with the overriding objective and the various pre-action protocol I mean, we've got all of that and you know it always seemed to me I, I wasn't really sure the point of the code I thought you know that, that wasn't what we needed the government to focus on is my view. <laughs> no that's right and I think it's it's interesting that despite the fact that it's not been included in the press release the government's website indicates that it's going to remain in place and it's going to be reviewed again in March 2022. Yeah, that's probably just because it's easy. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and so let's talk about the new initiatives, uh, which the government has indicated they want to introduce, which would presumably replace the code effectively. Um, do you want to tell our listeners a bit more about uh, what they are and, um, and perhaps give us some thoughts on what you think of the detail we've got so far? Yeah, I think the first thing that we ought to say um, is that at the time that we're recording this podcast, um, there is very limited detail um, about what the government's actually proposing. Um, obviously, when we do get the detail, we'll do another podcast. But here, for the purpose of today, I think we're just looking at the bigger picture. Um, and what the government has announced that it intends to do is to bring in some, some legislation to ring fence arrears which have been accrued during the pandemic and where tenants have had to remain closed as a result of the restrictions. The idea is that the landlords and tenants will need to reach an agreement as to the arrears accrued during periods of closure, 
and that in default of an agreement, legislation will be brought in to introduce a formal binding arbitration process. Conversely, tenants who are open and trading should be paying their rent um, and any rent falling due after the relevant sector restrictions on trading are lifted will be actionable by landlords. And I think the, the concept of a binding arbitration um, has probably come about as a result of the lack of teeth um, that the code of practice had. Um, and you know, the point, as we said before, was made in both, both the decisions that we referred to that um, the courts wanted to focus on contractual certainty um, and that the code of practice didn't alter the legal relationship between the parties, but binding arbitration, which is effectively forced on two contracting parties, is actually very much in danger of achieving the opposite um, of contractual certainty. I mean, we've not got any information about how that's supposed to work at the moment, but it begs the question as to what binding arbitration might impose on two contracting parties. Yes, and often to well-advised contracting parties. From what we've seen during the pandemic, very often it's the larger retailers, many of whom have been trading during the pandemic, who've actually been the ones who have not been paying their rents. I am getting very concerned. I mean, I think we all understood when the pandemic hit, we understood you know, the restrictions on our lives, we understood the restrictions on landlord's remedies. It may have been frustrating, but it was understandable. We are getting to a point now, and there were some really good um, extracts in those judgments uh, of the cases you mentioned earlier and, and we'll put the summaries um, well the summaries are on our website we will put the links to them on there so that people can take a look but you know there's some very good comments by the judges about the importance that law offers certainty we are not certain countries uh, where you risk that you're doing a contract in that country, but at any point the government might decide to just rip up the contract and it will mean nothing. You know, the, one of the, the beautiful things about the law in this country is that we are not that type of jurisdiction, that we offer certainty to contracting parties. And I'm, I'm really becoming quite concerned that we risk losing that. As a jurisdiction litigating about contracts, you know, there's a reason parties like to have English law apply to their contracts, even if they're not necessarily based here. Um, and I think we're at real risk, actually, of going too far. And as you say, Natalie, we haven't seen the detail. Um, maybe I'm getting my on my high horse already for no reason, but I am a little bit worried. That's absolutely right. The courts in both the decisions were clear that they that the code of practice couldn't alter the legal relationship between the parties, but that does beg the question as to quite how far a binding arbitration could go and you know what sort of clauses might they be looking at amending and what pressure would that put on contracting parties both um, in any negotiations in connection with rent arrears where one or other party is going to be in a difficult position um, and you know the uncertainty of what might happen to the document that they previously agreed. Yeah, and I keep coming back to the same point as well in these various discussions is that the government seems to um, either ignore or perhaps not understand the fact that, you know, landlords, that, that, that they do want tenants in their properties. They are very well aware of market conditions and the difficulties they may have in reletting properties uh, and the rents at which they will have to relet them and all those sorts of things. So, you know, if there's a good tenant business already in your property, you know, I really don't know of many landlords who don't want to engage in a constructive way 
with that tenant. Um, so, you know, I am concerned that they're, they're going to be sort of interfering in contractual relationships where actually there really isn't the need because th th there's, there's reasons on both sides to engage positively. And I know there's always the odd party that doesn't follow that, but, you know, you're going to be potentially penalising a lot of parties for the sake of a bad behaviour of a few, possibly. Yes, yeah. Well, we shall watch this space and obviously, as you say, we shall report back. Um, and Richard, are there any other developments that uh, we should be watching out for? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the one development that I have to talk about um, is not going to um, address or allay your concern regarding the government's approach to uh, commercial landlord and tenant relationships, unfortunately, um, because in addition to uh, what Natalie has, been, Natalie has been discussing regarding ring fencing and arbitration, we've also got the government's announced wider review of commercial landlord and tenant relationships um, that, that renew that review was announced in December last year and although it's still unclear as to exactly what's going to be on the agenda um, it, it, it's clear that it's quite wide-reaching we've had although uh, the government press releases about it so that it was not necessarily directly connected to that review we had the call for evidence um, between the 6th of April and the 4th of May this year. Um, we've got government concern regarding the use of CVAs to alter lease terms and disclaim leases. Um, and then we've also got comment from the government regarding looking at the application of the 1954 Act um, in terms of renewal procedures, um, as well as models used for commercial rents generally. So I think there is quite a lot to look out for. Um, it's very much as you've already alluded to a case of waiting and seeing um, but it does seem to be um, that commercial landlord and tenant relationships more generally are very much uh, on the government's radar as we speak. You're quite right that strikes fear into my heart um, and not least because um, I mean I, you know, perhaps it's just I'm getting old and grumpy or it may well be that for example the litigation we have seen and the unintended consequences from the government's drafting of the electronic communications code and its attempt to interfere in that part of the market you know it's not been a success um and i'm yet to be convinced that the commercial property market needs more government interference but yeah i mean likewise i mean i think the uh, for example, just taking the 1954 Act, this is a piece of legislation we've had since 1954, and it seems to be working well from, from what most people, uh, most commentators can see in the market. Um, so why there is a particular need to um, interrogate that particularly closely, I don't know. No, I don't get it. And when you think sometimes, you know, the, the bits of law that we sort of think, goodness, you know, why haven't they sorted that by now? You know, there's other bits of property law where they really do need to sort it out. I mean, Natalie and I recorded a podcast for Christmas on a couple of those areas. Um, you know, it is it does slightly frustrate me that they're putting their energies into something which generally works pretty well. Um, and, you know, with the risk that they'll, they'll just create a load of issues that, you know, we don't presently have. But Again, we'll watch this space, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have no other choice, Emma. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both for joining me today to cover um, these important updates and outlining what we're seeing and are likely to see in relation to the issue of COVID arrears owed by tenants of commercial property. Uh, for our listeners, uh, when we do get the detail about the government's proposed binding arbitration scheme, we will cover that in a separate podcast. Um, and obviously details will also be on our website um, 
do let us know if there's any other topics of interest to you for any future podcasts Uh, but in the meantime thank you for joining us and we hope you are out there enjoying the summer this is a charles russell speechley's podcast 